Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hey everybody, welcome to the 10% True Podcast. Quick message from me before you get stuck in. This podcast is free, so there's no advertising. I don't monetize it on YouTube. You don't have to sit through any annoying adverts, and I don't even ask for any money through Patreon. But if you could, in exchange for that, drop me a like, leave a comment, share my content, and if you're listening to the podcast version, maybe leave a review of the channel, that would be hugely appreciated. It will help me to grow my audience, which is really what I'm trying to achieve. Anyway, with that, I'll let you get back to listening. Enjoy. Danny, welcome back to 10% True. It's uh, th- your third visit or our third discussion. So I appreciate uh, you giving me your time again. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome, Steve. It's great to see you again. Thank you. This time, once again, in the sunshine in the UK. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's uh, it's been a warm week, but it's going to change. Uh, so we're going to be back to the normal miserable weather of the UK. Um, but anyway, cheer, it cheers me up to speak to you. So um, we are going to try and cover today then uh, your time on the F-102 and on the F-101. So you were, before you got to the F-105, I'm stretching my mind back to interviews, but you were in Air Defense Command. Exactly right. You were in Air Defense that, Command. That was my, my first assignment out of pilot training was to the F-102. Okay. Can, can we talk a little bit about that then? So what what was, for somebody not familiar with Air Defense Command in, and the picture in terms of uh, geopolitical and international relations between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in the 1960s. What was Air Defense Command tasked with doing? Well, there's a joint uh, venture between us and Canada. If you go back into history, uh, uh, after World War II uh, and the nuclear bomb was developed, uh, this Cold War began. And the, the Russians had built this marvelous, still flying, uh, marvelous uh, bomber, uh, Q-95, the, the Russian bear, the, uh, <clears throat> and they had a lot of them. And, uh, and so the, the worry was that these massive bomber assaults would come over the, the polar regions into the into the northern Canada as well as into the U.S. and uh, and so the Air Defense Command was built as a uh, uh, a mechanism to be able to put forces in place to be able to uh, counter that threat and uh, that's where the F one hundred two came in later the F one hundred five and and a terrific airplane the F one hundred six which unfortunately I never did get to fly. It's a terrific airplane. But it was not only uh, these particular uh, aircraft systems that were built, but there were also uh, ground-to-air missiles that were created to uh, fire at these uh, supposed bombers and a huge uh, radar line, uh, the defense early warning system news lines. And there are still very good radars that are sprinkled all over northern Canada that are uh, that, that were our early warning system to be able to look over the horizon and see the Russians coming and uh, and allow time for the uh, North American Air Defense Command to respond to that. 
And uh, there was a, a large command and control system that was built in Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado to be able to help sort out the various radar inputs and and uh, and other signals that they were picking up on to be able to tell that hey we're under threat we better get our active forces together. So that was the basic idea was to stop the threat from coming in. Well, that resulted in the creation of a, a couple of concepts. Uh, we we were put on uh, the, the, there were alert pads that were built on several runways that. Uh, allowed a, a, a fairly short access to the runway. And uh, the aircraft were put on alert. And we had uh, basically um, uh, three different types of alert that I saw. One was five, you know, five minute alert. You, get, you got five minutes to get in the cockpit and be in the air. And we get this thing fired up and buttoned up and, and you're done. The, the second one was a little bit longer, uh, about 15 minutes. And um, and <clears throat> that was kind of a, more of a backup force. They were armed exactly the same way uh, as the aircraft that were sitting on five minute alert. But uh, you know, so that that was the the two primary ones. The the third uh, uh, alert system was <clears throat> one of the weapon systems that. Uh, was uh, created was an actually a new, unguided nuclear rocket uh, called uh, uh, later on it was called the AIM twenty six and and uh, it was a nuclear missile and the idea was uh, you take off with this thing get authority to launch it and it would take out not just one airplane but perhaps several and so uh, that. Those were the alerts, and that one, uh, we were on a one-hour alert, and, um, and and so I think the idea behind that was that they wanted to have pretty significant assurance that the country was under, actually really under active a threat, and they were coming before we ever launched these guys that had nukes on them. So... <clears throat> So there were several bases throughout Canada, as well as uh, throughout the United States, that had uh, aircraft sitting on alert. What uh, was the? Uh, I'd like to because that was the Genie, wasn't it? Is that the name of the AIM twenty six or the the nuclear tip missile? Uh, the nuclear one, yeah, yes. The Genie. Um, so, so just right. sticking with that then for a minute. Um, once you had launched on that mission. Um, when you say you were waiting for permission to fire it, was there some kind of computerized interlock or something that would not allow that missile to leave the aeroplane until somebody on the ground had sent a launch code or something? Or were you trusted to simply... No, not- no that, was, that was in the cockpit. All right. So you would press a button and, and away it would go. Yeah, you'd arm it and release it. How old were you when you were flying that mission? Let's see. Well, I was just a young bro. That's probably twenty-two. What did that feel like then? I mean, how, how did you how did you feel about that? The flying in uh, with that responsibility. I was uh, twenty-four. Uh, I signed up uh, when I raised my right hand and, uh, and took the oath of office. And I basically wrote a blank check to be paid in full to include giving your life if necessary. Uh, to the United States, and and I still feel you know, very strongly about that uh, commitment to what the job was, and it's really a trust in the national leadership to be able to to uh, make sure that they're expending over resources like me uh, wisely. Well, we know darn well that didn't take place all the time, you know, <laughs> but in any event. Uh, I, I actually, uh, in terms of uh, thinking about uh, firing a nuke weapon, I never thought about it that much. If you go back into that same time frame, the Army was developing nuclear-powered uh, artillery. And, uh, I mean, so the concept of, you know, the smaller nukes and, 
and to be used in specific geographic areas, uh, it was there. It was also at the same time that uh, nuclear, you know, these huge nuclear bombs are being dropped on ships and radiation. I mean, so the, the, our national psyche on uh, uh, nuclear warfare at that time was quite different than it is today. Right now, there's a lot of people looking back at having dropped that first bomb, second bomb, you know, in Japan, you know, and counteracting and all of that stuff. And, and uh, you know, so that's a, but that's a whole other discussion. So, so what was the profile then for an AIM uh, or, or a Genie launched? How far away would you launch it? And were you then going to get caught up in the explosion? Oh, uh, it turned. Second? You turn, you just get the heck out of there. Right. You know, <laughs> you know, they fire the weapon and then break. And so how far and, uh, how far away would you be from the bomber force when you when you launched to them? Well, actually not that far. I mean it's uh, you know, you're you're you know, you're talking you know, I don't know, maybe quarter of a mile, a little more. Wow. You know, so you're 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 fairly close. Uh it's a it's a rocket, you know. And, uh, uh, it, the, those years, the the, the uh, rocket ranges weren't nearly as the technology was nearly as developed as it is today. With uh, <clears throat> and, and if you think about uh, 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 the creation of Air Defense Command, uh, we had just come basically come out of World War II. And uh, having fought against the, the Germans and the, uh, and the Japanese and uh, defeating their systems, it was about 1948 when the, the planners began thinking about this idea of creating a, uh, a jet-powered interceptor, which eventually led to the development of the uh, F-102. Uh, and with Convair having won that particular contract to, to build the airplane. Well, when they first built that F-102, uh, they didn't have uh, didn't have full understanding of the supersonic aerodynamics. Uh, there, you know, there was a lot of learning taking place as you're, as you're building this thing. And... Um, the first uh, airplane uh, that they flew had a J, uh, I think it was a J-47 engine on it. And then they went to a J-67. Neither of those were greatly underpowered. They went to a, a, a J-57, earlier version of it, uh, to be able to get the aircraft to fly. And uh, it was supposed to be a supersonic aircraft. It only got up to Mach 0.98. They couldn't get the thing to go supersonic. And they realized that the transonic drag was far higher than they had uh, anticipated, calculated, and figured. And so what they wound up doing with the F-102 was stretching the fuselage 11 feet and, and making this Coke bottle area rule shape in there to allow the, the aircraft, and they also thinned the wing uh, uh, quite a bit. So they're learning how you make supersonic aircraft uh, while, while they're doing it. This is the Convert guys that are building this thing. And, uh, you know, Lockheed and Kelly Johnson had a different idea with the F-104, <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, so in any event, um, uh, that was, that was the early development of the F-102 and its concept and its role that it was playing in the Air Force. And the Air Force built over a thousand of these. Uh, just, just on that then, now, now when we last spoke, I said, did you ever fly tacit blue? And you said, no, I'm not a test pilot. So so having, um, having added the caveat, you're not a test pilot. Can you explain a little bit about why the area rule works? Um, so you you already described it as the Coke bottle. It's a sort of a pinched look, isn't it, when you look above? And I think the F-104 had it as well. Um, certainly, um, I, I'm pretty sure the F-104 had it. But but do you are you able to explain, or would you be comfortable trying to explain how that works? Well, 
that the influential five also had it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and as the air is going through past the fuselage, I'm, I'm not an aeronautical engineer. No, I'll leave that. My, my degree is in mechanical engineering. So I've worked with nuts, bolts, levers. <laughs> so in any event, uh, well, a lot of chemistry as well. Anyway, the, when the, the fuselage uh, go, comes in like this, you create a little pocket of air in here as compared to the air rubbing on the fuselage. And, the, and, the air, and, and so the air that's in there, although it's moving, the air that's going past it is air passing air as compared to air rubbing on metal and, uh, and, 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 and forcing its way back. And so that, that helped reduce the drag consider considerably. Uh, they also increased the thrust uh, considerably to, to be able to get this machine to go supersonic. And it got up to about 1.22 or 1.2. And uh, that, that was its limiting speed roughly 53,000 feet. What, what about the avionics fit then for the aeroplane? We, we really briefly touched on in the first interview, almost as an aside, um, the fact there was a data link. But can you talk a little bit about the radar in the aeroplane and that data link and how you as an operator use those things? It's been many years since I've worked in this okay. particular area. So, I'm, I'm, you know, my, my memory is... Uh, uh, a bit vague on, on exactly uh, the concept, but it was generally what I'm remembering is uh, we weren't getting a lot of automated uh, input from uh, a day, you know from uh, control systems. We were working with the ground intercept controllers, people sitting on the ground, looking at a radar scope and steering us. And, 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 and that's where we got our, our, our direction from, was from, from those, from human people sitting at a, a GCI site somewhere, uh, steering us around and talking to them on a radio. Was, was some of that communication then um, instrumented? So if they wanted you to climb or take a certain heading, was there a heading carrot on the ADI or did something appear on your radar scope that, Oh, I don't, it wasn't that sophisticated okay. yet. So, so, so it you was were... all verbal. Oh, by the way, speaking of the, the, the new interest, when I <clears throat> when I was flying uh, the aircraft in pilot training, uh, the, the oxygen system was a diluted demand. That is, you when you breathe in, the air came in, and if we could also hit the hit our, so you get it under pressure. Well, in Air Defense Command, all the aircraft, when you when you put the helmet on and put the mask on and you turn the oxygen on, you got it at 100% under pressure. And so you had to learn how to breathe all over again. You relaxed to let the air in and you had to force to exhale. And you had to learn how to talk all over again. Because of initial conversations on the air by people who are just learning how to talk using this um, uh, oxygen system, <laughs> it was it was kind of kind of comical to hear them because it, for starters you didn't understand what they said. <laughs> was that, so was that, that, that was a that was something, and that was something I hadn't anticipated. Was that all the time? Is it pressure breathing all the time, or only above uh, fifty thousand feet, or? I mean, from the moment you, if, if you were taxiing on the ground, you had your mask on, would you be pressure yeah, breathing? Exactly. Really? It, it, wow. it was a hundred percent pressure breathing all the time. So, so I am being unfair asking you to recall details fifty years or so after after the event. But, but do you remember then what a typical intercept looked like? Again, from your point of view in the cockpit, um, were you? Um, immediately under ground control from the moment you took off or was that only did that only happen at a certain point to take off your work with work with the tower and the departure control and uh and, and very often if you're your mission is to go fly intercepts you're going to be turned over to a, a gci site at another frequency and uh so you'll just be transferred over and it's a, it's a very not that much different than working with the air traffic control system where you're climbing up to altitude and you go through various controllers and you're passed off one person to the next 
uh, for uh, for heading information and and what they and them telling you what they wanted you to do to be able to deconflict the airspace. And the controllers, uh, if we were out on an air intercept mission, uh, would have pretty much tell us. They would give us headings and altitudes to fly, and then they would tell us the where the target was and the altitude of the target. And um, and, and we practiced uh, several different uh, intercepts. Uh, some some from a quartering front. Uh, some and, and depending upon uh, the circumstances, we could fire. We had uh, in the F one hundred two, we had uh, twelve uh, folding fin aerial rockets in the doors on both doors. So we had twenty four of these things, and they are two and a half inches or, or two and three quarter inches in diameter, uh, unguided digiscope from rushing out. And uh, you know, if they hit something, fine. If they don't, they just fall to the earth. <laughs> it's just. Uh, but we also had uh, uh, two. Uh, we had uh, a capability of firing either uh, heat-seeking uh, aim for rockets or uh, or semi-active radar. And so, if you're uh, working a friend intercept, you'd be using a semi-active radar to be able to attack us. There's no way the heat seeker is going to see that. And uh, but if we were coming up from the rear, either a quarter, you know, some some angle off or right straight up the tailpipe, uh, we we could attack with the uh, uh, heat seeking version. And um, the, the the radar that was built by Hughes uh, would allow us to be able to do this in all weather. Mm. And so. Uh, as a matter of fact, you can fly formation off of somebody by uh, uh, following the uh, steering commands in the cockpit to, uh, and your head is in this scope, seeing this, you're not even looking outside, you're just looking at this thing. And uh, have a con radar controller on the left hand yoke to be able to control and you're flying the airplane with the right hand. and. Uh, and so in any event, uh, we could come up to a, a, a kind of a station to be able to hold position on them. But there would also, uh, you know, the, the primary purpose was to get you into a firing position. And, and, the, and the machine would tell you, our radar, you know, the radar, onboard radar would tell you uh, when it's uh, firing time. But before you, you ever got to, uh, to do that, the radar controller, by steering you to the target, would, uh, you know, the, the obvious is you're going to go after this. And so we would, uh, this would be recorded uh, in the, uh, on the radar, so you could, you could score yourself after you landed. People would look at you and look at your scores and see what you're doing and get some feedback on, you know, improving your, your performance. I remember reading um, Robin Old's book about um, his, well, it's, it was his autobiography, but he covers part of his time in Vietnam. And he, and he talks about them bringing the AIM-4 uh, Falcon, I think it was called, wasn't it? The AIM-4 Falcon to Vietnam. Um, and a he, lousy missile. Yeah, that's what he said. Did you know that at the time in, in Air Defense Command? Did, no. no, and of course I did. You don't know what you know until you know it. And, uh, you know, and, and I didn't know any better. Did, so, At that time, I was, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't aware of uh, other missiles that were out there at the time, hmm. and uh, of course, uh, the one that I carried in the combat in the F one hundred five was a Sidewinder. It's a terrific mission, you know. And that that's still here, hmm. being modified, you know, and uh, has a terrific capability. But we didn't have those. We had Falcons. Did you have any? So today, there's you know WESIP, the Weapons Systems Evaluation Program, or something. I think it's called where they go to Tyndall and they, they'll shoot missiles. You know, an operational squadron will get a chance to do that. Anything similar for you? Any opportunity to actually release live ordnance from the airplane while you were in Air Defense Command? Not the F one hundred two. F one hundred one, different story. Uh, because uh, I did go through the F-101 training at Tyndall, there was a range available, and, uh, and, and 
And when I got into the F-105, we also fired a, a sidewinder. We'd fire a rocket first and then shoot a, a, mm. a, a sidewinder after it. And, of course, the sidewinder is faster than the first rocket, so it could get shot. That's cool. <laughs> So can can I can I just talk numbers then in terms of the threat versus what you were carrying? So so the the, the vision, this apocalyptic vision, is that um, hordes of these um, bears and badgers and things come over the horizon carrying their nuclear wares, and they're going to drop them on the continental United States, and and you guys and the Canadians are going to launch and try and shoot them down. So if you've got um, the folding fin rockets, or you've got um, I don't know, was it two genies you could carry or whatever? Um, presumably the Russians knew this, so they're not going to be flying in a nice tight formation and, and give you the opportunity to just pick them off like fish in a barrel. They're going to be using sneaky tactics. They'll be dispersed. What was your, uh, as as a community then in Air Defence Command, what were your predictions about how many of these things you were going to take out? Um, and how did you deconflict with the ground defences? Because you had the Nike missile and you know, there would be the opportunity for engagement, just like you experienced over Vietnam, where it was a multi-layered defense. Um, what, what, what did you think it would really look like if it happened? I don't remember a lot of discussion on that, because I think in, in our heart of hearts, you know, we hoped and thought that it would probably never happen. We, were, we knew we were there as a just-in-case. And, and, and I don't remember a lot of banter in the, the waiting rooms. Uh, of people talking about that. I mean, there are, most of the conversations were about a particular golf course. And uh, <laughs> nor, normal day-to-day conversations. And so, you know, the, 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 the fairly deep esoterical discussions of, uh, of potentials, they did take place, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't frequent. It was uh, actually probably, I would say, more infrequent in the air defense command uh mode i mean it's a we we had we had our own job like in the f-101 uh when i was flying that airplane uh we would uh be sent off to again setting the stage the cuban missile crisis had been uh, had taken place and the, the russians were flying theirs down to Cuba, and um, and so we were sent out over the Atlantic to be able to intercept these aircraft and uh, take pictures of them and so on. And even at night, we had this great big spotlight on the side side of the aircraft that we could aim at the bomber to uh, to, to try to identify exactly what this machine was that we're looking at, and. Uh, no doubt there were people that were interested in uh, new antennas and uh, new little blips and blobs that were showing up on the fuselage of that machine and uh, and, and so on. And so that, that was a basic, our, our basic job was uh, sitting on alert and, and get launched off and get tied up with a GCI controller. As far as deconfliction from the others, uh, we pretty much depended upon what directions we were getting out of our controllers. So any deconfliction that was taking place was being taking place via landline on the ground between some GCI site and whatever other defense site that happened to be wrong. We also had a transponder on the aircraft that mm-hmm. would tell us who we were. And, uh, and, and so that would, that would be a means for anybody on the ground to be able to read our transponder and know that we were, you know, who we were. And each aircraft had their own. So you, you could tell who is who. I want to get to the um, F-101 in a minute, but just, just a couple of more questions about the 102 before we do that, Danny. Oh, yeah. um, I, I got some stories on a 102, by the way. Well, that's this is what I was going to ask. Uh, I was going to ask if, the, if there were uh, if there were particular uh, missions that stand out in your mind or, or anecdotes that you have to share. The first thing that I got, uh, you know, it's a when you sit in the cockpit at F-102, the intakes are sitting right here, 
and they're well forward of you. I had just come out of that T-38. T-38 was a, a, a very fast aircraft, great acceleration, terrific visibility. You're sitting in a cockpit and there's nothing there. You can look right straight up. So that was, oh, this is interesting. And, uh, and the takeoff roll was considerably longer because it had far less parts. The thrust to weight ratio was very different than the F-1, than the T-38 that I had just flown. And as a delta wing aircraft, you pull the nose up fairly high, uh, relatively, and, and, and basically stayed there until the aircraft flew off the ground. And once you're airborne, there were, there were no flaps. You just raised the gear and you're, and you're on your way. I found the aircraft, the handle, flight handling qualities were, were very, very nice. Um, and, uh, it was an easy airplane to basically uh, fly. Uh, there was a particular uh, that we had learned in the T-37 uh, called a, a flame-out pattern. And you could, if the engine quit, you could fly over the aircraft or over the field and do a 180-degree turn or a 360 turn and, and, and get yourself lined up and land even without power. And we practiced that. And the F-102, they call that high key and, and, and come on, come on around. Other aircraft that I've flown, like the F-104, F-105, uh, typically the, you know, if you lost power, you're going to punch out. I mean, it's just, that, that's the end of the hunt. Uh, <clears throat> I flew the F-102 at night. Oh, coming out of the chocks, the J-57 engine, you get this, choo-choo stalls. So if you, you had to be, I learned to be very ginger with the throttle control in the aircraft. And, and, and that stuck with me throughout my flying career. You know, I, I never tried to abuse the engine. Uh, that's the only one you got. And so you, <laughs> you moving the throttle just to get this thing to move, you had to kind of slowly advance the throttle. And once you got the thrust that it was moving, uh, you'd be able to you know, get the aircraft taxing and get out to the runway. Same thing, running it up at the end of the runway to uh, advance the throttle. Once once you got out of the, the low, lower power regions, you could advance fairly rapidly to get up to full power and then advance it off into the afterburner for takeoff. Uh, if you were flying at night, and you were after a target and you got yourself slow and you tried to put a lot of rudder, the compressor stall was impressive. It would blow flames out the front end of the aircraft and they'd come pushing back over the cockpit. And uh, so that happened to me once and I said, hmm, don't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have um, because it is it's a it is a big delta wing airplane. So did you have any kind of and you met, you mentioned this in our very first interview again just just and we never really explored it, but you just said we never really did any uh, basic fighter maneuvers against different aircraft or anything like that in air defense command. No no DACT or anything like that. But did it have any inherent capability against other fighters other than just being able to pull off one big turn as as you would expect from a, a delta wing? Well, it, 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 the aircraft uh, had the low wing loading. It was, a, a, it was only 35 pounds per square foot. And, and so the, the aircraft could turn, but it didn't have a gun. See, there were uh, studies that I've read about later on where they were thinking about uh, adding uh, the weapon stores for an air ground roll, adding a Gatling gun in there, and, and so on. But the, the only thing that we had to be able to counter another aircraft like another fighter, uh, would have been these rockets and uh, and, and these Falcon missiles, and, and, and that's it. But being so underpowered, if, they, if the other aircraft climbed and you, and you were climbing, the, the, the relationship between the, the climb angle and the airspeed indicator was pull back in a second, the air, airspeed goes to zero. You know, and you go like this, it's just... 
Is there, there's a a drag curve then, as, which is exactly really what you're describing. So, so if you um, if there's a lot of airflow hitting the wing because you get into a higher angle of attack, then you need the power to be able to get out of that. So, was the aeroplane um, particularly tricky to land because of that? Uh, were there some? Uh, no, uh, but uh, if you stall the aircraft, uh, one of the characteristics of the F-102 is interesting. Uh, you could be descending at ten thousand feet a minute, and you could see this on your on on, on your altimeter as your and your rate of descent uh, indicator. And uh, and and if you rolled the aircraft to the left, it would roll; it would respond. And uh, and to the right, if you pull the nose up, the nose would come up. You're still going down like a rock, you know. But the nose would come up, so you had to actually push the nose down. And get the airspeed back up into where the airplane is actually flying and no longer stalled to get out of that. And, and that did kill people. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, the, what I learned, I learned a lot of things about flying airplanes, flying the F-102. And one of them is don't get behind a power curve. Because if you get behind a power curve, you can be hurting. And and you've got to have altitude to be able to recover from the you know from that. But once you're you, if you maintain the reasonable approach and, and you look at the uh, the the uh, um, runway and and you maintain that that was okay. One of the things that I got used to, that I had to get used to is I had this split screen in the front, so you got the iron bar sitting right there in front of you. And so you're looking out the left, the right window or the left window. And um, after a while, it became, you didn't even notice it. You learned how to work your way around it, but it was kind of a noticeable thing. The other con- the other thing about the F-102 that uh, uh, is true also in the F-106 is that the cockpit stopped right back here. So the visibility aft was terrible. And uh, you, you can see that, but uh, in order to be able to see behind you, you actually have to turn the airplane and, uh, and, and, and get a view. And so the aircraft was never built to be an aircraft that was an air-to-air fighter. It was built to be an air-to-air interceptor. And, uh, and, you know, and that's a different, uh, a different construct. You know, airplanes like the F-100, uh, different story. Uh, they, you know, those guys practiced that uh, air-to-air maneuvering, and their uh, canopy would uh, would allow that. And uh, even though they flew with that same engine, J, you know, J seventy-five, the, the variant, uh, the, the amount of thrust they had was about the same. I've never actually looked up what the wing loading is on the F one hundred because I never had a chance to set foot in it, and. Uh, but ABC never did that, not once. No, <clears throat> there was a time uh, when flying the F-101 that they had a much higher wing loading. It was up around 100 and 130 pounds or something like that per square foot. Oh, really? And so it was quite a transition for me to go from the F-102 to the F-101. Can, can you talk about that then? So what, for, for the layperson... You've talked about a 36 or so pound versus 130 pound between the 102 and the 101. What does that actually mean then in terms of you as a pilot and, and how the airplane feels and how you treat the airplane, how you fly it? Well, if you have a, a lot of power with a low wing on an airplane, you can make small circles when you're turning. And if you have high wing loading, uh, and uh, you're going to be making a much larger circle. Now, what that means in combat is if you're flying an F-105, which has a, a wing loading up around 100 pounds, about 90, some 93 pounds per square foot, and you're trying to outfight a, a MiG-17, that guy's going to turn inside you and roll around and be in your tail. And, and, and that's the impact of wing loading. So um, from, from an interceptor point of view, um, just which I'm guessing, if you were to simplify it, is really a case of you know how quickly can you get to a point in space and time from from the moment which you launch. Um, does wing loading make a difference, or is it just really when you come into the turning um, fight or or turning capability that 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 it's important? It's only in a turning fight. 
where it's important. Uh, with the, or, or at the slower end of the airspeed envelope, of, uh, how, how slow you can get this thing before you. You mentioned, um, Danny, when you talked about the F, uh, F-101, the Voodoo, that it really had fantastic power and uh, climbed really well. What what other characteristics of the airplane did you like? Well, it's a much larger aircraft, for starters. Uh, it's, it's, it was higher than the F-102. Uh, I had two people. There was, I had a, a radar intercept officer in the backseat that had uh, his job was to bail to operate the radar and, and he would quote turn the airplane over to me to go actually fire the missile up. and um they uh, uh that that was an immediate uh and as i mentioned to you earlier it had a terrific power uh the uh when, when the advanced throttle it had two engines uh, both J-57s, and uh, uh, and they had a hard light. And so w- when you went into Afterburner, you, uh, you, you you felt the boom. And so we had, I would advance one engine and then the, the second one to make sure they're both lit. Uh, and and, uh, and then just advance the throttle right up, you know, to uh, the full Afterburner. And fairly quickly, uh, start raising the nose, and and fairly quickly the, the 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 nose would be off the ground. The airplane would be airborne, and immediately retract the landing gear. Uh, and, and the reason for that is the nose landing gear rotated forward. And if you got too fast, there's too much air pressure to overcome that little actuator that's trying to struggle it gear up into the wheel well and uh and, and you trap it and now you're sitting there and say oh rats hung gear so you got to come out there air, uh ab slow down get the gear up go back into afterburner and uh, then you buy the bar when you get back <laughs> What was the so so? What was the um, evolution then between the one hundred and two and the one hundred and one from a from a, a sort of an air defense command point of view? Then, so you've added a second person into the cockpit. Uh, you've got more power. Presumably, you can get from the runway to where you need to be, the intercept point, more quickly. Um, what was was the addition of that second person then? Um, in some way, going to improve the quality of your interception? What did that? What did that nav bring? What did that? radar operator bring to the the party having uh, the radar intercept officer in this particular role added uh, a fair amount of capability we still were getting uh, 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 direction from the GCI controller but it reduced the workload on the pilot quite a bit when I was flying the F-102 uh, I'm listening to the to, to the uh, controller and, and talking to him and by the way, I'll, I'll get back to this a little bit uh, uh, on the yoke, on the right-hand stick, there's a little button up here. F-105, we call that the pickle button. And uh, But in Air Defense Command, this is used as a, a, a mic. We had one on the throttle and we had one up here. But if your hand is on the stick, you can't touch that one. Bit. Well, you can, but it's, it's kind of awkward. So you had this one to, to be able to talk. And uh, and so you're doing all this stuff, and and where you know F101B, the radar intercept officer was actually the guy that was setting up and, and giving giving me steerage and uh, you know uh, and direction to fly and so on. So and he was setting up the intercept where I didn't have to worry about that. He was doing that. All I had to do was once he got this thing locked on to the target. Uh, I would get this uh, uh, command co- uh, signals on uh, a device in the cockpit where uh, I would then follow this dot and uh, and see it uh, 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 approaching the target. And I would get an indication of uh, uh, when I should be holding down the, the trigger to fire a weapon. 
having it all armed up and, and, and ready to go. And, um, and, and so that was basically my job as a pilot was to arm it up, make sure I got the right weapons selected, communicating with the fellow in the back to make sure that I got the right one set and, uh, and go from, and then actually fly the aircraft. He did not have a stick in the back seat. So he, uh, not, not able to do it. Unless it happened to be a, a, a trainer model where, uh, there was an F model and they had, had a stick in the back, but they also still had the same scope. Uh, one thing when you were talking about the fact in the F-102, there was no, um, sort of data driven, um, command and control from the GCI site, i.e. there were no little uh, carrots on the instruments to tell you when to climb and descend and where to turn to and heading all that kind of stuff. It was all done verbally. One thing I wondered was whether, how how vulnerable that uh, method would have been to comms jamming. And uh, I think the, the Russians um, had a big emphasis on comms jamming. Um, so, so did this, so A, a is that the case where you did you did, was there a vulnerability to being com jammed and and b did the addition then of that radar officer radar officer mitigate against that i think uh, in, in many ways it did uh the, the air traffic controller on the ground would get us headed off in, into a you know specific direction but if we were after a target, sometimes I saw I saw uh, contrails coming at me, and they were eighty miles away. Wow! You know, so a lot of this stuff you could set ourselves up visually, and um, but the only difference is I didn't know if that was an airliner yeah. or if that happened to be a bomber. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> Did you not also on again? I'm showing my ignorance here. Um, uh, on the F-101B, did you not also have a little infrared um, sensor somewhere in front of the forward? We sure did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that was a mod that was added on the aircraft. It's actually a, a ball about that large that was set right in front of the, the, the front cockpit. And, and yes, we did have an IR uh, intercept capability, which we practiced. How, how did that differ uh, then from, from a radar intercept? We we still had uh, steerage, you know. You, it would give you range and elevation, not range, but it would. The radar is going to give you range. IR is just going to give you direction and altitude, you know. But if you can't, it's not going to tell you how far out it is. Radar will. Could could you tie together those two systems? So could you find uh, something on radar and hand it over to the uh, the IR sensor? I think the I the RIO um, had that capability to be able to, to to take advantage of both of those. Um, as I mentioned in the front cockpit, um, all I got was what he locked on and set me uh, to. Okay. And so I, I, I would receive the information of what he's working in the back seat. What, what did you really think of the F-101 then in terms of a, a pilot's aeroplane? Did you enjoy flying it? I've enjoyed every aircraft. Uh, again, F-101, I learned uh, uh, a lot. It had a high T-tail. And so one of the characteristics of uh, that particular aircraft is it would pitch up. And there were people that were killed um, uh, when the aircraft pitched up. Uh, one of the characteristics was we had veins on the left and right side of the fuselage on the outside that would measure the angle of attack. And if you exceeded uh, a, a certain angle of attack, you're going to get a horn. And, or no, in this case, it would be a stick shaker because the F-104 had the same, the same issue. And so I'm getting them both confused. And in any event, you get the stick shaker. And if, if you kept on, going, they're actually going to drive the stick forward for you, uncommanded by you. It's going to push your craft forward. And so I learned how to read the aircraft because I noticed that before you start getting the shaker, the nose of the aircraft is going to start to move on its own. 
that's going to kind of start seeking, you know, it's very light on the, the, the touch. So I learned to be able to have a fairly light touch on, on the aircraft. Didn't horse it around very much. And, uh, and because that aerodynamic uh, uh, response was telling you, the airplane is telling you something. And so uh, I learned I learned about that. Uh, once, if the aircraft pitched up, uh, it took, you could recover the aircraft uh, and go up and over and into a, basically a spin. So we had a drag chute on the aircraft and we popped the drag chute and that would force the nose down. And then when you got back, you know, your airspeed back up to recover from the dive, you could drop this, you know, you know, punch off the drag chute and, and, uh, or it would shred as it accelerated. And, uh, then you go back and land the airplane. And then, uh, you buy the bar, you go talk to the commander. <laughs> did, did that, did that ever happen to you? No. I've had the shaker hit. Matter of fact, there was a couple of times where uh, I, I learned a lot about, you're talking about wing loading. Was the, we had just completed an intercept on a B-52, about 32,000 feet. And this B-50, beautiful, big airplane, he started turning and I tried to turn inside of him. No way. I mean, I got this shaker and, you know, and, and it just, bunk, and I was, the, airplane, the B-52 was going that way and I was going that way. <laughs> Whether I wanted to or not. You know, and so I, I learned a lot about, uh, you know, feeling of the aircraft and so on. And, and that came into play in other aircraft that I flew later on. But uh, the, once they lower the landing gear, you could you still get the shaker, but the kicker would never happen again mm -hmm. because uh, it, it would not drive your nose down as you're trying to land the airplane. And uh, that would that wouldn't work out well, and uh, and so in any event, uh, I learned how to quote read the aircraft uh, coming around base the final turn. Uh, you know, if you start start getting the shaker back off some, and uh, and at, at power, and, and if you're going to overshoot the runway, overshoot the runway, go wrong, come back, try it again. What was the um, uh, the, the sort of typical number of hours you would fly every? month then i mean i'm, I'm curious uh, it's interesting you hear it to hear you talk about learning things and and sort of getting to know the feel of the airplane and and to be light on the stick and then you you taking those lessons with you how many hours were you flying and um what sort of what did a, a, a typical week look like in terms of sorting numbers well i was uh, i flew the f one uh f one uh, from January of uh, 66 until around the end of April of uh, 67. And in that time frame, so that's uh, a year and three months. Hmm. That about right? Yeah. If my calculation yeah. is right. I've got uh, 278 hours in the F-101. That's not so bad. Total time. You know, so... We were getting you know, 20, 30 hours in a month. Yeah. And you, know, you roll into that, you know, some vacation time and, and, uh, and so on. Did you do a lot of TDY? Did you did you go and visit other other units? And, um... uh, and, and yeah, as a matter of fact, we did. And the F-102, no, it's always in training, totally. Um, but in, in Charleston, yes. Um, I went TDY to uh, from Charleston Air Force Base. I went to four forty fourth Fighter Interceptor Squadron at Charleston, and, um, and, and we had a detachment uh, over uh, north of us at Wilmington International Airport in Wilmington, North Carolina, where we were sitting on one hour of work with nuclear weapon, and so uh, we were uh, we, we we were there a lot. Uh, the TDYs that uh, we had uh, went on to a gunnery meet in uh, at, at Tyndall uh, uh, from Charleston. And uh, the other, we would fly to, to typically up to uh, Langley, Virginia, because uh, they had an F-106 unit that was 
the station there, and uh, we had F one hundred and one. And the one of the practices that Air Defense Command had was to not only train the aircrews, but we're also training the weapons load controllers who are loading the aircraft. And so we would fly up to uh, Langley, land the airplane, and their weapons controllers that typically work on F-106s were cross-trained to be able to work on the F-101. And so, and, and likewise, they would fly an F-106 from uh, Langley down to Charleston, and our F-101 loaders were able to work on an F-106, cross-trained on the, on, on the 6. And, uh, and and the, the reason for that was if hostilities took off, I could be diverted to any base someplace in Air Defense Command, and those people would have to be able to operate my machine. And, uh, and, and likewise, somebody from someplace else could wind up in Charleston, and our people would have to have a capability training uh, to, to handle that. So in that sense, there was a you know, fair amount of TDI involved. So what was your favorite of the Century Series fighters that you flew? Uh, <laughs> I prefer blondes. I'm married to a blonde. You know, they're, they're also different. Uh, I, 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 I actually really do not have a... I guess F-104 and F-105 together, I would have to say, would be my favorite. And if I had to pick between those two, that's going to be tough. The 105 uh, brought me back uh, uh, through some hellacious time. Uh, I had, you know, I, what, what did I get in the thud? Flying time wise, uh, probably well, 655 hours in the, in the F-105. And I had uh, 680 hours in the F-104. And, and so, the F-104, I think, probably brought back uh, fonder memories, and we can maybe talk, we can talk about that now. Uh, and part of that is because uh, uh, of what we did with the airplane, hmm. and where, where we were living and what we were doing to people we were meeting. When, <clears throat> when I finished the F-101, I got orders to fly the F-105 uh, combat and uh, and then as I mentioned earlier after my combat tour uh, I, uh, in, including a, a month uh, PDY up in Talk Lee flying with the 357th uh, on Squadron Exchange uh, from Karat uh, I then went to Okinawa from Okinawa to McConnell uh, Wichita, Kansas the F-105 Turn the airplane over to the Guard and Reserve, and then off to the F-104 in in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, that was uh, that was kind of a shock. Is the temperature in Wichita and the temperatures underground in Phoenix are dramatically different, and uh, one of the behaviors that uh, took place in Phoenix is that around the first of May. Uh, bets would start taking place on what day and what hour of the day that a person could fry an egg on a wing of an F-104. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was it was blistering hot. And to go from the F-105 to the F-104 uh, was, a, 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 was, a, was an interesting transition for me. The, the cockpit of the F-105 is uh, about 13 feet in the air. So, I mean, it's a, it's a big airplane. The F-104, just the opposite. I mean, you, you can almost stand on the ground and you look right straight at the pilot in the eye. He's, he's slightly higher, but not that much. And so the aircraft is much closer to the ground. And of course, the cockpit is totally different, and you learn how to fly that. But what I follow with the F-104 is because its wing loading is not that much different than the F-105. Uh, the, the 105 wing loading was 93 pounds, and the F-104 wing loading was, uh, uh, what, what is the 104 wing loading? 105 pounds. 
So it's, uh, uh, it would make slightly larger circles than the F-105, you know, and, um, but the feel of the stick controls and when, when you, when you turned it and, and pull the nose up and so on, uh, unless you're actually looking at the cockpit itself, uh, you could tell very little difference between that and the F-105. And, um, and, and the mission in the F-104, initially that Kelly Johnson uh, designed it was as an interceptor. The mission that I flew it in was ground tech. We, we also uh, flew the aircraft and, and uh, air to air. We talked the basic fighter maneuvers. We talked advanced combat tactics and, and so on in the F-104. And, uh, you know, there's uh, lots of stories to tell uh, in, in that regard. Because I wound up leading the uh, F-104 German Air Force, U.S. Air Force Fighter Weapons School at Luke. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, that sounds to me like that. That sounds to me like it's a, a separate interview. <laughs>